Hello, my lovelies. Welcome back to another episode of Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Erin Palmer, and today I am joined by the lovely Julie. Welcome back, Julie. Yes, hello. I am hello. back. So you are good. back for another round. Yes. Completely different topic this time. <laughs> Entirely different topic. Yes, and now I have you all to myself. I don't have yes. to share you with anybody. It's mm-hmm. just you and me. Lovely. I can express all the opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Give me the opinions. I value yes. all of them. Oh, you will Ooh. have them. I <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> all right. Well, take it away, Julie. What is our source material today? Our source material today is The Silence of the Lambs, the second in the Hannibal Lecter series by Thomas Harris, published in 1988. Wow, 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 wow. I can't yes. believe it was 88. That's crazy. I kind of forgot that it was written that, like, it's not late but i don't know i just my brain doesn't translate to it It was written in the 80s but i Mm -hmm. guess it kind of is dated there's parts of it that are kind of dated i can see that awesome okay well and our adaptation is also the silence of the lambs which is directed by jonathan dem deme i don't actually know it's deme is it deme maybe i should have looked that up before yeah okay uh and it maybe apologies if that was not right uh don't at us (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we are not professionals. I'm sorry. Uh, and it was directed in 1991 and starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and Scott Glenn, and many, many others. And I am so excited to talk about this. This is such a good, good read, good movie. Um, and then, you know, before we jump in, spoiler alert, lots of spoilers. If you don't want any spoiled, go read the book, go watch the movie, and then come back and dive in with us. And... Before we get started, Miss Julie, are you pro-source or pro-adaptation? You know, the usual rule of thumb is, you know, if you read the book, you love the book. However, mm-hmm. I gotta go with the movie on this one. Ooh, yes. twist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give a quick little, like, not too much because we'll get into it more, but like a smidge of a hint as to why the movie is better? Oh, just a smidge. Hmm. I'd probably just have to say overall feeling once you complete the movie versus completing the book Mm. Uh, Mm. i enjoy the feeling of the movie more if we're going into smidge territory yes smidge territory. (laughs) okay so that's a little teaser for you great love it i'm intrigued okay Mm -hmm. cool well then let's jump right in let's talk about the source material first so julie could you give us a quick synopsis please so the source material uh is that Uh, Young Clary Starling is a trainee at the FBI Academy, and she is surprised to be summoned by Jack Crawford, chief of the Bureau's Behavioral Science Section. Her assignment is to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a.k.a. Hannibal the Cannibal, who is kept under close watch in the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Dr. Lecter has an intense curiosity for the dark corners of the human mind. Will Hannibal be able to help Clarice find the FBI's latest serial killer, Buffalo Bill? And what will Clarice find out about herself along the way? Ooh, mm. I like that. Tantalizing. I know, yes. very tantalizing. And that was straight from the book description, right? Oh, that was uh, a composite of the book description. A composite, got <laughs> yes. it. Perfect, love it. Okay, great. Well, uh, let's talk about that. What, uh, we're going to start with the kind of typical questions here. What stood out to you? What was, what your faves, your dislikes? Tell me everything. Probably like the two big things that stood out to me about the book is, um, we kind of talked about it before, the meticulous plotting of the mystery. Mm -hmm. You're literally following breadcrumb after breadcrumb. 
until you solve the mystery and you follow it along every step of the way. Every step makes sense. You see why they're going from point A to point B to point C to point D, etc. Mm-hmm. And also a luxury that a book has over, say, a movie is deep dives into as many characters as the author wants to talk about. So right. in this case, uh, we are primarily in the minds of Clarice. Uh, we're in the minds of Jack Crawford, her boss slash mentor. Mm-hmm. We're in the mind of Hannibal Lecter. And right. we are also in the mind of the serial killer we're after in the book Buffalo Bill. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because it, it is really interesting to see all of the different perspectives of the same story, which I, I'm always a big sucker for bouncing around, but not everybody likes that. They're like, there's too many things going on. <laughs> yeah, but I really like it. Um, that's a great point. So I wanted to talk about the character of, um, well, Clarice. So I was like, what was yep. her name? <laughs> the main character. Uh, yep. So what what are your kind of initial thoughts on that character from the book perspective? From the book perspective, um, this is kind of where the age of the book and the sex of the author kind of come into play. Because yeah. you kind of mentioned <laughs> that you were surprised, but then again, not surprised that it was a 1988 book. I feel like the character in the book is a very quintessential, quote unquote, strong female character of the time. She doesn't really express much uh, what would be categorized as like female emotion. No, not a whole lot of compassion or empathy or, or quote unquote, soft feelings. She's all like anger and rage and resentment in her head and contempt for those around her and... You know, when she's thinking about the victims in this case, she's always, always makes a point of calling them out for being fat and unattractive and kind of indicating that they're pitiful in some way. Like she feels bad for the floater they found because, you know, she was uh, wearing glitter nail polish and just trying to cover up her ugliness and fatness and be appealing in some way. And it's like, ah. That's not a great thing to have. And yeah. uh, it'd be one thing if that was like shown to be specifically her. Mm-hmm. But as she interacts with other women, it doesn't seem to be much of a difference between them. Yeah. Like when she's talking to the uh, first victim's friend, her friend also seems to have that opinion of her fat ugly friend yeah and how oh she had a boyfriend but he was gay anyway so they weren't really doing anything it wasn't a real boyfriend she wasn't Mm -hmm. she wasn't able to get a real boyfriend and yeah Clarice is only allowed to be angry uh about uh like all the politics going on around her she is like or when the cameraman is trying to get into the storage unit uh she's like banging on the door threatening to crush him under it which is a very mm-hmm. like you know that's something like you can see a, a male character very aggressive. yeah <laughs> yeah so it's kind of like you know oh the 80s style having a strong female character is to make her as masculine mm-hmm. as possible with makeup and dress and dress but, shoes <laughs> but she fancy but she fancy yeah yeah, yeah it's ugh, yeah i totally you hit the nail on the head it's it was interesting because parts of it are quite well written as far as like having her be a quote unquote strong female lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of hate that term personally, but whatever. We'll use yeah. it for now. Uh, That's why I said but, quote unquote strong yeah. female <laughs> character. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of my least favorite titling, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, but 
there are parts where it's like, oh, wow, she's like being shown as being very intelligent, very perceptive, very quick on her feet, um, is does not scare easily. So there's a lot of good qualities that, you know, it's not necessarily a masculine trait, but then you get stuff like the fat shaming thing. And she's like, oh, well, she goes to the fat stores and, and you know, mm-hmm. and that perception that she doesn't have the quote unquote feminine lens on things because that makes her quote unquote weaker or whatever you want to interpret that to be. But you're right. She doesn't really show any sort of like sympathy or any sort of like compassion as much as anger and concentration and frustration. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's a little bit more aggressive than I think it would need to be. And I agree. I think it does have to do with time it was written and also a man wrote it which is a very different interpretation if a woman had wrote it Mm -hmm. so yeah it's I think that's probably the most aged part about the book is just that kind of perception which is a little frustrating but it doesn't like completely dominate the story at least I didn't think so did you think it kind of dominated and, and ruined her character overall or just like there were highlights I wouldn't say ruined her character. I would just kind of say limited her character. Yeah. For the time, I would I would think this was great. And when I read it when I was younger, I thought she was great. She right. was the kind of like female person I wanted to be because of a lot of internalized misogyny. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <You got laughs> like, that? You know, strong and powerful, I only have rage against the system and blah. Yeah, uh, yeah. But exactly. um, you know, as as you get older, you come to see these things as faults and limitations as opposed to things to aspire to mm-hmm. and perhaps that can be ascribed to her being a uh, young ish she's like you know does she have a master's degree in it like she's uh, at at the oldest i'd say mid-20s maybe yeah i think so like maybe 26 27 ish i mean they don't really stay yeah still in that yeah. range still in that range of finding yourself kind of thing plus she's in a male-dominated field where you kind of had to be that way to be accepted another thing in the books is that she's seen as being like you know kind of more intelligent than her peers in the Mm -hmm. fbi training academy like when they're watching the news conference and some guy just pipes up why is she doing that thing she explains oh they're doing this because of yeah this these reasons i know all the answers yeah or uh, when they're at the gun range, her instructor uh, is saying that though she still needs work, Clarice is the best shot of all of them kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so to have a good female character, she has to be better than everyone else in some aspects, which yeah. is kind of like that dichotomy again to have a strong female character means she has to be better than everyone else and not just good enough kind of thing. So that's you know, you can take as either, you know, that's just her character. She is better than everyone else. Or you can take as a sign of the times that it was written in kind yeah. of thing. And not to shake Thomas Harris or anything. He did good for the material that he had and probably, you know, the people he was talking to at the time. I'm sure mm-hmm. that this was an attitude that a lot of women may have had in the 80s as well. Yeah. Um, or at least were willing to say outright because they wouldn't really want to admit to having any kind of softer, more feminine thoughts about cases or how they deal with people or anything like that and we'll talk more about it for the the movie side (laughs) i know i know i'm trying uh, not to bring that up because that's definitely (laughs) on the list of like ooh, let's think about this from the film side but um you're absolutely right i think that because of the background of like she's in the fbi and it's a very male dominated field um, I think that there was a little bit of overcompensation there for like, not only is she really smart, intelligent and fast and, you know, whatever, she's also better than her male counterparts, which mm-hmm. I mean, isn't a bad thing, 
But it's you're right. It's not really it shouldn't be a necessary thing to be like she's a strong female character because she's above and beyond the regular Joe Schmo in her, you know, in her field, which it does seem kind of like I don't know. It it just seems like it's unnecessary, but at the same time I see why they kind of framed it that way. Again, not my favorite, but yeah. Meh, take it or leave it, right? Yeah. When we're reading the book and we know like the general era comes from our own understanding of the past contextualizes certain things for us, even if it's not what the story is about or even if the story mm-hmm. mentions it. Like if we were to read a story about an African-American character in the 1960s, we would conce- uh, contextually know what that character would face, even if that's never mentioned or brought up in the story we're reading. Right. So in this sense, we kind of contextually know that women in law enforcement, you know, went through a lot of bullshit yeah (laughs) and however i kind of feel in the book that a lot of clarice's um suffering and discrimination seems to be more from her student status her lack Mm. of experience and like internal politics rather than any specific instance of gender discrimination yeah the only time that i think they really called that gender discrimination out was when she went to um what was it the uh, victim that was found in the river mm-hmm. and they went to in like examine the body and they had to go to the funeral to do or the funeral home to do that and it was like she was surrounded by all the men in the room and then the boss is like oh can we can we take this somewhere else mm-hmm. because of who's in the room with us and so then you know that's like the only sequence in the book that really highlighted that they're like oh well we can't talk about this in front of the women folk so mm-hmm. And then they she calls him out on it, though. And again, yeah. the response is not that she calls him out saying, don't do that again. But she says that and she's angry about it, mm-hmm. which loops us back to like she doesn't have a you know civil conversation with her superior about her frustrations. She's like, I'm angry and I'm going to tell you about it and be forceful. And but yeah, yeah, that's the only time I think that they really actively say, like, you are a woman and we are discriminating against you because you're a woman, not because of your training your status but yeah i thought i thought that actually was kind of nice to see that there wasn't too much like well you're a woman and you're not supposed to be here yeah that can Um, get tiresome yeah after a bit Mm -hmm. yeah and it's the whole if if the whole premise of the book was like i have to prove myself because i'm a woman and people don't think i belong here if that was the driving factor of the story i feel like it wouldn't have been nearly as compelling because you get so wrapped up in her trying to achieve that goal which it it would distract from the actual like storyline i think if they did it yeah. that way true that true that i would i would say the overall story is not about a woman in law enforcement it is about you know solving a mystery and hannibal lecter and moving the plot along kind of thing getting too mm-hmm. into the weeds of gender discrimination and bringing it up over and over would have gotten tedious and boring after yeah. a time and plus like we said her motivations and character and characterization could go either way one way or the other so overall i would probably say her characterization in the book is good but dated essentially yep. yeah agreed agreed well let's switch gears a little bit how did you respond to hannibal lecter's character <laughs> he's kind of the other pivotal role in this story even though he's not in it all that much but mm-hmm. very important character yeah, uh, without like drawing too many comparisons to the movie, um, I will say that physically he 
is just different from most humans altogether. Like right mm-hmm. away, they call out several times. He's got like six fingers on his right hand, I think. I think it's his right hand, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of important later for like when he's making his escape uh, afterwards because he is able to hide something using that as a distraction. Mm-hmm. And he also has, I think... Oh, and here's where I can't remember if this is a detail from the other books in this series or this one in particular. They have like <laughs> red or maroon colored eyes even. Yeah, I think they bizarre. reference that. They yeah. they have a weird thing where they actually mention a couple times different characters like the eye color is actually called out, which I thought was actually very interesting because I, I don't know if it's necessarily important to the story, but it was an interesting kind of color coloring texture. Um, Do the, you remember yeah. other instances of that? Because I, I didn't pay attention to that, so I can't tell you what the other ones are. I think that he describes Clarice's eyes as kind of like a, a, a kind of a gray blue shade of some sort, I think. And then I feel like he described at least one other person because I, I don't remember what it, I should have written it down. I don't remember because it was I, I remembered that he called it out, which I was like, huh, that's interesting that he's done that multiple times to call out eye color, which is like a really odd thing to call out. Like you don't see that very often unless it's like an obscure kind of like yellow eyes or something like that. That's or not maroon a eyes. Or maroon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to derail that, but that, I, I just know. thought that was interesting. <laughs> the reason I ask is because sometimes eye color uh, can be used to kind of isolate uh, or differentiate people with coding as opposed to having to spell it out so with Ah. Hannibal Lecter physically having like the six-fingered hand and the red eyes he is already seen as more or other than Mm -hmm. just human yeah yeah good point that physically even he is abnormal and you Mm -hmm. should be wary of him just from those alone and then you find out oh he's called Hannibal the cannibal great yeah 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 (laughs) And I feel like in the book, he kind of comes across as very arrogant, kind of like, because he is a psychologist. So he kind of has that, like, you know, academia superiority about Mm -hmm. him, especially when they describe that, you know, even in an asylum, he's still publishing articles and is still being sought after by students and other psychiatrists for consultation stuff. And like, he's still very smart, very capable person. He just happens to be a murderous cannibal who is a sociopath living in an asylum for the criminally insane. You know, as you do. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, with the book, we also get a few chapters into his mind and Mm -hmm. we can see exactly what he's thinking, why he's quote unquote helping Clarice and exactly how much of what he's saying is correct or incorrect or misleading or mm-hmm. it was kind of like obscured truth, all, all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah. very terrifying person, especially uh, if you have read the book before without like getting too in the weeds of that. It just builds more on a, this terrifying character that you yeah. have, especially since they do make mentions of it in the book to the previous book Mm -hmm. which is called red dragon if you want to read it yeah and so it's just like a building of this boogeyman essentially that we haven't seen a new aspect of him yeah his character is it's like it's unlike anything that you see in you know i mean there's a lot of like the bad guys that are cannibals but it, I think because of his kind of extra layer of sophistication and his background of being a psychiatrist and like he's a very well polished in the elite class of the world, you know, which is like a very interesting kind of touch to 
to build on that character. He's not just a raging like psychopath who just wants to eat people and is like bonkers. Like he's very, very well kept. And it's, Mm -hmm. I think, almost scarier that way because he's so composed all the time and you just can't tell what's going on in his head. And he is like thinking, you know, 30, 40 steps ahead of everybody all the time, Mm -hmm. which is what makes it pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah, especially when he can switch between politeness and rudeness. But purposefully slow. Not like he's affecting uh, politeness, but is actually rude. He's like, no, he is polite and he affects rudeness kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like when he calls her a rube, he's like, he'd just been professional and courteous with her. Uh, and uh, it's kind of like giving kind of little tidbits of information as he amusing himself as he does so. And mm-hmm. then when she gets a little too forward, he's is able to directly pinpoint a comment that will get her hackles up and kind of disarm her essentially mm-hmm. calling her a rube and that she's pathetic and he doesn't regard her well at all. And yeah. bites right to it. It's such a contrast to how he had been behaving just literally before. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's, it was really well written to have almost like two different personalities all wrapped into one person because he knows, I mean, like he's a sociopath. He knows how to play people. He knows how to read people really, really well. And so he knows exactly what buttons to push and when. Mm-hmm. And it's it's genius. <laughs> yeah. And when they're having their little like, you know, tit for tat uh, information bit, the quid pro quo, mm-hmm. um, and he's asking her about her life and she's asking if uh, the farmer, if he like, you know, did he touch you in the middle of the night? Did he molest you? And she goes, no. And it said he looked disappointed because yeah. that would have been like a clear thing that he could attack her with. And he's like, oh, I don't get to do that. Oh, oh well, you're boring. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, that's true. He's like, I want something like gritty give me something juicy yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah, so that I can use this against you later because it's a trigger or something like that yeah and and again his power is in his words in his mind and how everything works in his mind so it's definitely if he can find that trigger he will like milk it for all it's worth basically and it's terrifying (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh my gosh well uh I've asked you a lot of questions do you have any thoughts that you want to kind of bring up uh, yeah, what do you think of the book characterization of Buffalo Bill, or a.k.a. James Gunn? Oh, Buffalo Bill. Um, <laughs> okay, so this, I guess I lied. So before I had said that the uh, the way that Clarice is represented is kind of the only dated thing, I lied. So Buffalo Bill is kind of the other piece that's kind of outdated, and very, very specifically is the usage of the term transvestite, um, which is not the PC term now. But his character is very interesting because they have part of the book from his perspective, which is great to see how he's kind of like how he works, but they don't give a lot of backstory on him. Like they give little nuggets here and there. So he's kind of an enigma in a lot of ways because there really isn't much background on him. And you just see kind of, again, what he wants you to see from his perspective, um, but without giving a lot of his history away which I thought was kind of interesting because it makes him very elusive and um, mysterious, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the transvestite aspect of him in reference to like how they described it in the book? Yeah, they use transvestite and transsexual, which are both outdated terms now. Mm-hmm. But I thought I think that when it comes to representing like small populations of people, you have to be very aware of what you're doing, especially when you're portraying them in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, Harris was very aware 
what might come across if he were just to have, say, a casual, oh yeah, quote unquote, transsexual bad guy killing women to create a woman's suit, etc., etc. I like that they take the time to specifically detail how not only is he not a, you know, quote unquote, typical transsexual, and I'll use that term because that's what they use in the book, Mm -hmm. but that he specifically is not 100% a transsexual, full stop. There's like... Mm -hmm. No question about it. The characters explain to each other why this is the case. And then uh, Jack Crawford has an argument with a doctor who has mm-hmm. a very good case for not helping the FBI. He's like, I'm not going to help you. Mm-hmm. At John Hopkins. Yeah, mm-hmm. at John Hopkins. Uh, he's like, I'm not going to help you Like, start a witch hunt against transsexual people. These people have a genuine condition and they need help. And I'm not going to let you like, you know, target them just because they have this condition and then jack crawford fights back with like i know that's not what i'm asking you for i'm looking for someone that you yourself said was not transsexual i'm looking for someone you rejected from your program because you knew they weren't this wasn't the problem that they had Mm -hmm. and and i say problem because that's what they also use in the book yeah again outdated but yeah yeah so he's like i i don't want your transsexual patients i want the people that you rejected for like you know xyz factors so that they take great pains to kind of paint that this guy is not these people. This mm-hmm. guy is outside of these people. He's not even related to it. He's just affecting them. Mm-hmm. He, he's pretending to be what they are or who they are. See, so yeah, I, I appreciate that he took the time to spell it out. Like, this is not another Norman Bates <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is not you know, someone who's been driven mad by their gender identity or mm-hmm. uh, is jealous of women, or he may be, because another thing about the book is with James Gum is in his chapters, we only get surface thoughts. Yeah. He doesn't really think too much about what he's doing or why he's doing it. We learn more about his background from the other characters than we do mm-hmm. from him. It's all He doesn't think too deeply about himself or why he's doing what he's doing or even what he wants to accomplish. He just refers to Catherine as the material because mm-hmm. uh, he wants to like, make a bodysuit out of her. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know why he wants to be seen as a woman if that's even his thing he just wants a seamless suit that anyone would be able to touch and not realize it's a suit but it's like he doesn't think about who that anyone is he doesn't Mm -hmm. think about if it's a man or a woman who's doing it um he doesn't even really think about what life would be like once he has the suit it's just kind of he just wants it yeah immediately and that's all he's thought about is that he he wants it he as they say in the book he covets he just wants he doesn't think too much yeah. about why he just he just does it's a very interesting take on it and i think it's because they didn't want to kind of dive into the thoughts of like what it means for james gum to be seen as a woman or what he thought of himself there's also a point in the book where um Hannibal Lecter's thinking about his patient who was a friend of James Gum about mm-hmm. how even though they were in a sexual relationship, the patient says, yeah, but James isn't really gay. He just like is trying it out. He's he's not really anything. Mm-hmm. He's just trying it on. Yeah. Yeah. He just he just is kind of thing. And it's like, OK, that kind of gives other context into things. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I appreciate the effort, whether or not mm-hmm. successful. We'll talk about it later. But yeah. <laughs> I thought of who are we or even the author to say whether someone is or isn't transsexual, which is fair, you know, or, or transgender, which is fair. No one, uh, no one else can say what someone else is experiencing. However, mm-hmm. 
we do get glimpses into his head and it didn't feel right to see him as transgender, especially since he himself refers to himself as a he. He never yeah. refers to himself as a she. He insists on key, on his name being pronounced properly over and over again. That's a thing that's reiterated by even other characters about him. Right. So right. he hasn't dead named Jame or anything like that. Um, but what I was thinking about was like, well, you know, if he doesn't want to be a woman, what does he want to be? And it's just like, oh my God, he wants <laughs> to be his mom. <laughs> yeah. I, I even reread his chapters last night and this morning and I found something, just one thing that almost explicitly says it uh, in one chapter. It's like um, he's watching the video of his mom or the one that isn't really his mom, but not important to this. Right. Um, and. I highlighted it and he says, and there she went up the ladder, all shiny and wet, wonderfully buxom and supple with the small cesarean scar and down the slide. Wee! So beautiful. And even if he couldn't see her face, Mr. Gum knew in his heart it was mom filmed after the last time in his life that he ever got to really see her, except in his mind, of course. And then at the end of that chapter was when he's like putting the pattern together and seeing how well it fit. He says it was supple, pliant, bouncy like he just described her as being he could mm-hmm. see himself just running up the ladder of the water slide as fast as you please he wants to be his mom <laughs> <laughs> no that's a really really good point i remember reading that passage and yeah i mean we and we keep coming back to kind of the idea of coveting mm-hmm. not so much like i do not identify as a man i identify as a woman like that he never brings that kind of perspective to it but again it's like all very surface level so maybe to some degree he might feel that way but he never says that explicitly so yeah. it's yeah it's it's interesting that's a really good point julie and <laughs> and another thing that i found whether his behavior was an earnest, inept attempt to swish, which, uh, or mm. hateful mocking, would be hard to say on short acquaintance, and short acquaintances were the only kind he had. Mm. And mm-hmm. just other things that I went through there. Uh, for other women, aside from his mother, he doesn't really talk about them very much, like how he feels about women in general. But the ones he's interacting with, he just sees them as it, something, objects hide uh when uh, clarice finally goes up to when we get it into his head when he sees her he's thinking of her again as material he wants her hair yeah but and the only one who really see him loving or you know even liking is his mother which makes me think it's kind of some form of like the madonna horror complex mm-hmm. or in this mm-hmm. case madonna material complex <laughs> where you yeah. just you just have the madonna the literal mother Mm-hmm. who all he has of her to remember her by is these are these videos and right. his goof him up of a name that he insists on keeping because it's probably the only thing he has of hers that she gave him right is that name uh so of course he doesn't want to lose it mm-hmm. and he's just obsessed with not womanhood beauty like the butterflies and the moths he sees her mm. as beauty he wants to be that beauty he sees he doesn't want to be yeah. Catherine. He doesn't want to be Starling. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to be himself, but beautiful. He wants to be, to change entirely into something different. Yeah, the epitome of beauty. Exactly. Ooh, that's a real, ooh, Julie, that's a point. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. And then also I, that made me think like this kind of, um, this line of the story where he's really hyper-focused on his mom 
it's never brought up in the movie. This is really only in the book that they actually like show that he's got family members that he actually like not aspires to, but like still thinks about. Mm-hmm. I mean, they reference that he lives in, I think it's his grandparents' old house, and they very heavily imply that he killed them. Yeah. Um, but they that beyond that, there's no other family, and it just seems like he just wants to – like the beauty part still came through. He still wants to feel that beauty, that transformation from the, you know, the, the pupa to moth stage, but it's very sexualized. It's not something that he's trying to aspire to be his mother. He – is just wanting to be beautiful in general, which I think kind of makes that character a little more shallow, I think, than I guess it's not he's not even that super layered, but there's just enough to kind of give you a hint like something else is under there, but it's all surface level. He won't really give you the full picture, which is kind of intriguing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's harder in a movie, especially when you're trying to appeal to mass audiences to really mm-hmm. kind of dive into uh, what's the word I'm looking for? MOs that people may not be too familiar with or that you can't spend like, you know, a few minutes expositing about, you know, right. that would just grind the movie to a halt to explain what this person is and why he's doing this kind of thing. And it's right. And even if it's in the book, it's just you blink and you miss it kind of in the book sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's much easier to have a serial killer like, you know, sexually fetishizing women. And that's why he wants a woman suit kind of thing, especially with the whole goodbye horses scene, which everyone remembers of the movie, yeah. because yeah. while it's gross and is unfair for for him to be lumped into transgender uh, representation in media is as far as like serial killer uh, motivations go is a pretty easily identifiable and understandable one uh, for a mass audience. So that's kind of where movies can have their limitations a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe I didn't notice it before because, you know, (laughs) he's he's got Ted Bundy for the cast and getting his victims to come to him. He's Mm -hmm. got uh, Gary Ridgway or the Green River Killers called the time dumping his victims in the river. He's got Mm -hmm. Ed Kemper killing his grandparents. He's Mm -hmm. got uh, one more... Uh, some guy who had a well in his basement and kept sexual slaves down there. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the most famous one, Ed Gein, who, you know, sk- uh, killed and skinned women. But of course, he was obsessed with his mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. how did I not connect the dots together before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, we the whole like he wants to be his mom is like it's like like a step away from like the premise of psycho again you mm-hmm. go back to like he wants to be like his mom which yeah. unfortunately is yet again not very great representation of transgendered people but it's not transgendered at the same time but it's like it's a weird in between yeah it is and it isn't uh in psycho i mean it, it is a weird representation of transgender but in Silence of the Lambs, they make such a good, they try to make such a point that he is not a transsexual, that by the time you learn that, it's like, oh, he doesn't want to be a woman. 
he wants to be his mom. That is not what transgender is. No one yeah. changes gender to become their parent. Right. Know? No, no. This is yeah, this is above and beyond the what the clinical definition of transgendered is. This is something mm-hmm. completely different. Absolutely. They muddy the waters a little bit when all they talk about in the movie is that he hates himself and that's why he wants to change. It's like, uh, that's a mm-hmm. that's a common uh understanding when it comes to transgender people. They you know, hate the bodies they've been born in, but because it's not who they are inside. Mm-hmm. So it's like that kind of language can code things a certain way. Whereas in the book, I think if they reference it at all, it's just that he hates himself because his mom left and therefore doesn't have anyone to love him. And that's why he wants to, in a sense, bring her back by becoming her kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a whole different kind of style of trauma, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. yeah (laughs) oh that's so good yeah I think also um I I think I agree with you on kind of kudos to um to Thomas Harris that he is not a transgendered person he I I you know I wouldn't say I doubt he knew anybody but he may not have known much about what it is like to live as a transgendered person so the fact that he didn't try to write a character with zero knowledge on what that is actually like, I appreciate that he didn't try to create a character without doing his research. So instead of doing that, he made it kind of all surface level, like you said before. And, you know, it's it's an interesting drive for a serial killer without kind of tarnishing what it actually means and the actual like journey and all of the kind of obstacles that transgender people have to go through. And so I do appreciate that he didn't dig too deep on that and like dig himself too deep where he couldn't get out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, any other thoughts? I I feel like we are already skirting the 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 movie pretty much. We're not comparing comparing things yet, but. (laughs) However, yeah. However, uh, let's jump into the movie so we can get to the yes. part where we do compare them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So let's jump into the film. So I am going to read uh, the movie synopsis for that really quick, and then we can jump into discussion. Yes. So Jodie Foster stars as Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI's training academy. Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, wants Clarice to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath, serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may have insight into a case and that Starling, as an attractive young woman, may be just the bait to draw him out. Ooh, they okay. really drawn that. <laughs> I know. Okay, so I want to kind of dissect that really fast. Um, the fact that they, the line, an attractive young woman, I was like, what is that? Like, why? <laughs> that does, Why is that even in there? Like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's to get butts in seats, yep. honestly. Uh, yep. Because they... they say that in the book and the movie, too. Not to draw a comparison, but it's a thing in both. Um that's, you know, oh, Jack Crawford sent Clarice to Hannibal to specifically get a reaction out of him because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. But just because they say that doesn't mean it's true. Like, we just talked about the book, but I, I will say in the book, when it's in Hannibal's mind, he never really thinks about Clarice as, like, ooh, she's an attractive young woman. No, that's, like, not even in his repertoire. Like, he doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't have any sexual thoughts towards her at all i'd Mm want to say and definitely in the book i mean in the movie 
we don't get that vibe either. Not at uh, all. I think if any vibe we get from him that's in sexual, it's specifically to be creepy to her. Like, yeah, if he brings it there, it's to creep her out, not because he genuinely feels that yeah. way. Yeah. Again, pressing those buttons, which is like he's trying to read her and say, like, is this making you go uncomfortable? Let's try this out. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think there's any sort of attraction at all. It's, I, I agree. I think it's just to get butts and seats, which I was like, ugh, okay. Like, yeah. it's just so like. I hate I kind of hate that description but whatever mm-hmm. uh okay well thoughts on the movie we know that you already like the movie more than the book so take yes. it away Julie tell us everything uh well I would I would say the biggest thing that stands out about the uh movie that the book just can't do is the female gaze mm-hmm. that yep. we t- talked about like it's surprising to me that the director of this is a man but I think he was just very aware of who his main character is, Clarice, yeah. and what she's facing, which is like, you know, gender discrimination. But it is never, it shouldn't be anything like you said in the book, that one instance of like, you know, can we move this to another room? There's a woman here to talk about. But just like the looks and the regard and the casual things that you can't really call out with, without sounding nitpicky or what's the word I'm looking for? Hysterical about certain things like all the male characters when they talk to Clarice we don't we never see them on the same screen talking to each other face to face they're always facing us the audience so we assume the point of view of Clarice and so we see Jack Crawford kind of regarding us as a tool he can use we see Chilton being close and uncomfortable and leering at her and just like, uh, go away, yep. <laughs> get out of our face kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Hannibal Lecter being all close and creepy and like literally dissecting us and so dissecting her. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I, so that's all like all that casual gender discrimination that you can't verbally call out without sounding a yeah. little insane but you can understand it just seeing what casual discrimination looks like mm-hmm. and like say uh, you called out in the book in that scene where uh, she's with the sheriff's people and they say can mm-hmm. we move to another room there's a woman here they don't really specifically have that conversation but we see it happen in the distance and then she's in the middle of this room surrounded by men in uniform with hats who are all taller than her a lot and then taller than her a lot taller yeah. than her and then the camera assumes her position and we see them literally looking down on her and they're not saying anything they don't have any like looks of disgust but they do not have looks of respect for her position or authority or her abilities they're all just like they're all judging why are her. you here why are <laughs> yeah. you here yeah. kind of thing yeah and so it's that casual thing that you can really show in a movie um and that really makes this movie stand out because mm-hmm. a lot of movies even if they're about women are about have the male gaze going for them because they have a male mm-hmm. audience in mind like not to get too far in the weeds but we just saw black widow and yep. without <laughs> without spoilers like you know she's just casually doing mundane things where do we focus the shot her ass and it happens twice (laughs) yeah in like succession too yeah yeah, i know and it's like why that did not need to happen this is like a movie about female superheroes with more female characters than male and we're still doing ass shots meanwhile in this movie with you know a female main character and despite how that's um, synopsis made a sound like attractive female character sent to Mm -hmm. seduce the evil man we never really see clarice sexualized in any way whatsoever her makeup is light and casual very minimal yeah her attire is professional there are no 
boob shots. There is no cleavage. There are no ass shots. (laughs) Um, There are no long pants to show how she's like fit and posed. And yes, she was sent for her sexuality and not for anything else Mm -hmm. to Hannibal Lecter. We don't get any of those shots to indicate that kind of thing. Yeah. That's where the female gaze really works for this movie is that treats her as a person and not a female person. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Cause I think that again, going back to kind of the way she's dressed, not only do they not dress her provocatively, but they also don't make her look, you know, stereotypically frumpy either. So you look at movies like Miss Congeniality where mm-hmm. she's like a hot mess and then magically transforms halfway through the movie, right? So they yeah. don't do anything remotely like that. It was like, oh, with confidence comes beauty. Like they don't do any of that. And she's, she's not represented as being, you know, frumpy so she's one of the guys like they don't do that either which I really appreciated like in the beginning of the movie she's seen running that course and she's like you know her she's all sweaty her hair is just in a loose ponytail she's wearing baggy clothes with like big sweat stains on them yeah and then she's called to the FBI office and you see her in the elevator surrounded by all these really tall well-dressed men and they're all looking at her and they're not looking at her with more respect because she's not feminine at, at this point you know being all sweaty and gross and not made up it's still that same kind of disregard and why are you here kind of looks no matter how you look mm-hmm. so i i do kind of like that uh framing there it doesn't matter what you look like you still face this no matter what yeah. as opposed to like you said like the miscongeniality only accepted that way when she does look frumpy and a hot mess and not feminine mm-hmm. enough kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and then also we had um, kind of talked about this offline when we were watching the movie together. But in the beginning, again, with that scene where she's running um, courses and doing her training, she's doing it by herself. And it kind of demonstrates that it's it's not about competition. It's not about being better. It's just she is doing what every other FBI trainee would be doing. And I kind of, again, I liked that the perspective of Clarice in the movie wasn't so much of like, she's got to be better than everybody else. And that's what makes her so perfect. Not the fact that she's just good at what she's doing. And she's good like any other person who is training to be in the FBI. And you don't need to have all these people, like, because they could have added all these different people and like all these men. And she's like, you know, hauling ass and just like, leaving everybody in the dust and just like wow that's impressive but they didn't need to do that they didn't have to have that visual and I I appreciated that as well they just had to show her that yep she can do the course yes she has the qualifications to do what Jack Crawford is asking her to do with Hannibal Lecter we don't have to see how she has more qualifications than anyone else we don't see how she is like squashing everyone at the obstacle course it's not that she's the best it's that she has qualifications to do what she's asked to do and that's Mm -hmm. it point blank done yeah Yeah. And then um, I want to transition that to what were your thoughts on her relationship with Hannibal Lecter slash the representation of Hannibal Lecter in the film? What are your thoughts on that? So in the film, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice, just with the shots they're able to take, you can kind of see the different positions that Hannibal assumes Mm -hmm. to get closer to her. Like in the beginning, she's sitting in her chair Uh, And he's standing above her, a clear, like authoritative power move Mm -hmm. as he's like learning about her and deciding exactly what he wants to do, what the cat wants to do with the little mouse that's been presented to him kind of thing. Yep. Uh, And he's like, you know, kind and courteous to her and then just is rude to her just to see what her reaction would be, which uh, she reacts the same in 
both scenarios, which is like, you know, to say, well, can you turn that power up observation against yourself, doctor, but is clearly a little flustered with it. Yeah. Um, but later on, you kind of see how Hannibal becomes more and more level with her yeah. in the movie. Um, yeah, visually, yeah. Yeah, like they're both sitting on the floor at one point talking to each other in the dark. That was after he had Migs bite his tongue off, right? Because they took yeah. his cot away and they took mm-hmm. everything out of his cell. And so he was just sitting on the floor. But you're right, equal level where now they're on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also with that scene of like them in the dark, we don't really get a clear view of Hannibal's face anytime. And we're usually mm-hmm. shot to Clarice when he's talking. So it seems more and more like Hannibal is becoming a voice in her head and a presence Mm. in her mind. Mm -hmm. And that happens more and more as the movie goes on, especially after Hannibal escapes and Clarice doesn't have that access to him anymore. She's trying to think like Hannibal and trying to interpret the notes he left behind and thinking what he wanted her to find. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that sense, Hannibal is, I guess, book comparison now, less toying with her just to see what she'll do and more trying to inject darkness into Clarice or inject Mm. himself into her Mm -hmm. which uh, is a thing that is interpreted for Hannibal Lecter in like almost all media he's in the books these movies and like the tv show they made too which uh, without getting too in the weeds of that uh, (laughs) there's a lot (laughs) yes there's a lot so I think in the movie they were able to make uh, Hannibal Lecter more ethereal and larger Mm. than life Mm -hmm. than just oh he's a psycho cannibal killer in a hospital who's a little scary (laughs) yeah yeah well and they they also have um to tie it into the the movie and the book for this particular topic but um they mention um oh what's his face the the Oh no, I'm spacing Will Graham? his name. Yes, thank you. I was yeah. like, he's in Red Dragon. Will <laughs> yep. Graham. So they mention Will Graham and how he's lost it, is living in the woods in Florida somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. and so they they reference that and just to kind of show you, like, this is what could be because of getting too close to Hannibal Lecter. And so they, I mean, it's a very brief section in the beginning of the book and the movie, but it it is a very ominous little like, hey, remember that? Remember when he went nuts? Remember that? <laughs> well, in the in the movie, they don't mention Will Graham at all, period. Oh, he, I this, thought they did. No, this is just a strict, like, Red Dragon does not exist and other oh. books do not exist. It's just Silence of the Lambs. The only mention they make of Hannibal's past is um, the nurse. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, Chilton yeah, is yeah. walking Clarice down to the cells, and it's very, you know, fast-paced uh, and clipped and very clean the halls are white and they're narrow so we're just focusing on them uh from a distance as he's just rattling off all the things that they Mm -hmm. can't and can't do meanwhile it's like the air is getting more and more claustrophobic and the like tension is mounting for us the audience and then they Mm -hmm. stop underneath a red light which is like with like the cell door right in front of them yeah and uh, chilton hands clarice a picture and says that and tells a story of how hannibal once faked a heart condition and then like ate the face off of a nurse Uh, as you do (laughs) as you do they didn't have to show the picture to like you know get that shock and gore factor they just had to show clarice's reaction to it that red lighting and chilton's just casual like you know joy of showing her something so shocking which is like shows how repulsive of a character he is such a skis such a skis it shows how much like while Clarice can maintain a 
professional uh, demeanor, you can still see how things affect her. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, you didn't need like the blood and gore, but you, since you can imagine it, you just describe whatever the most horrible thing you can imagine to this character who has all this buildup. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm assuming that, you know, not a lot of people who went to see Silence of the Lambs read the previous book at all. And mm-hmm. so you don't have that, you know, benefit of another book to see what he's to capable of. Yeah. yeah. So they just had to build all that up. And they did so beautifully with just marching, 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 describing how you can't pass him anything. He can't give you anything. You don't want to do this. You want to maintain a distance. And as you approach his cell, he doesn't have bars like everyone else. He has glass with holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> Make him seem more like an animal. With, yeah. with that shot yeah yeah well and that shot too is beautiful because it's a little bit different in the book but when she's walking down the cell hallway it's literally just a really creepy like brick on one side bars on the other and a chair just ominously sitting at the very end of the hallway which is a mm-hmm. great lead into like well i know where i'm supposed to go but damn does that look creepy as hell like it's such a good intro to that scene and i i it's like it's beautifully shot. Like I yeah. love how they did that. Um, it's very creepy. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention, like as she's passing all the cells, she sees all these people, like you know, uh, mumbling or muttering to themselves or throwing themselves Migs. against the bars, like yeah. they're animals, or like Migs who's climbing it like a monkey, uh, or like you know, one person who's just like sitting there, like dazed, stoic and yeah. silent, dazed, Probably yeah, drugged. It, exactly <laughs> yeah. what you know the casual person might assume you'd see in something called the. Uh, you know, Institute for the Criminally Insane. And then you pan to Hannibal Lecter, who's in, like I said, a cage uh, of just like plastic and or glass and holes like an animal. And he's just standing there poised and perfect, hands behind his back like, hello. Yeah. And he's got like beautiful like drawings on the wall and like Mm -hmm. a very different aesthetic. And I feel like his cell, this might have just been a visual that they decided to do, but I feel like his cell is bigger than the other cells. It just looked... Bigger. I think it's just more well lit. Maybe that's it. Because yeah. all the other ones are very dark. They don't look at them very closely, so I'm sure mm-hmm. that they were maybe the same size. But it just like the presence of his cell with him in it mm-hmm. just seemed bigger. And I think that's also the representation of oh, my heartthrob, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, I'm in love with him. He can do no wrong in my book. I just his this role like we were talking about this earlier but like he's in the movie for like what 15 minutes top mm-hmm, 17 yeah 17 minutes he's in that movie and it's like i he, he oscar has, yeah oscar right he has an amazing presence and he's in like a, a 16th of that movie like he's barely in it but you yeah. would never know because he's incredible and he just jam packs how awesome he is in every single minute he's on screen and it's wonderful it's wonderful yeah. Plus, since the uh, character of Hannibal is tr- is trying, like I said, to infuse himself with Clarice, even when he's not on screen physically, he's still there. His presence oh, yeah. hovers over us the entire movie. So oh, when yeah. people say, did you know Anthony Hopkins is only in it for 17 minutes? Your first response isn't like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. It's like, really? No way. No only way. That can't be right. He felt <laughs> like he was in all of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's incredible that it's like 17 minutes. Really? That movie is like, what, 90 minutes ish? Ish. Yeah. It's. Yeah. That's a that's a good standard length movie, and it's mm-hmm. 17 minutes of him, and it's crazy that it's only that much time. Because yep. you're right, he's just saturated in that movie everywhere, even if he's not on screen. Oh, it's so good. And given the limited amount of time he has on it, 
even the people awarding the Oscars must have felt it too because he wasn't giving best supporting actor. He was given best actor. I know. <laughs> for it's 17 wild. minutes. Yeah. I, I was like, <laughs> if, if that doesn't showcase how crazy good he is as an actor, then I don't know what is. Like that mm-hmm. is astounding to me. And it's like, yeah. oh, Anthony Hopkins, oh, you're so creepy, but I love you. And I just want to mm-hmm. listen to your creepy voice forever. And oh, and so uh, I was watching an interview um, that uh, – they did about Silence of the Lambs and Jodie Foster mentions how with working with Anthony Hopkins when he did that a uh, bit about like you know you know what you look to me with your uh your good shoes and oh yeah your you your, you like your new suit and your old your like old shoes or something like that yeah. yeah that you look like a rube he said she said that you know and he just started mocking my accent and I genuinely felt like offended and defensive and hurt that he would do that to me and it's like wait this isn't me he's talking we're acting he's, right now we're <laughs> acting right now and he's like but he, he was, it was just so good that he like like jumped to like mocking her accent and just doing all these things that would creep people out genuinely mm-hmm. yeah I know no, Anthony Hopkins is great did you know the first pick for Hannibal Lecter was Sean Connery no yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so be glad there was a scheduling conflict <laughs> can you imagine what that movie mm-hmm. that movie would never have taken off the way it did oh my yep. god can you imagine hello clary <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i i'm like i literally can't even imagine oh my god sean connery would have come off as such a, like an ass in that yeah. movie like it wouldn't have been nearly the beautiful like debonair suave kind of aesthetic that anthony hopkins brought it would have been he's just a sociopath and he's egotistical and that's literally because i mean that's not that far off from what sean connery actually was and so <laughs> so i mean oh yeah that would have given it such a different flavor and i'm so glad they didn't go that route oh mm-hmm. my god i didn't know that <laughs> yep just to go sh- just to show how important casting is when casting, it comes to yeah. character representation some things you can be like yeah anyone can play that and something's like no only this person can play it maybe yeah. that one but definitely that one i know i can't even think of who like i don't want to think about who else could have played that role because he did such a beautiful job it's like nope there is no one else it is anthony hopkins mm-hmm. i will say mads Mikkelsen though in the tv show was great pretty damn good too mm-hmm. like but that uh, show has like a totally different totally vibe. different vibe <laughs> yeah but anyway we won't go down that rabbit yeah. hole we're not talking about that today talking <laughs> oh about my gosh <laughs> yes we're still on this okay um is there anything else you wanted to bring up i know that we're yet again it's like this the comparison thing is hard to stay away from i I understand so Mm -hmm. (laughs) is there anything about the movie before we transition without doing comparisons what stood out i mean like i don't want to talk about comparisons but there's like so much well i Um, mean if we're if we're there then we're there i mean we can we're there we're there yeah Yeah. (laughs) if i think of something i'll shout it out (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well then, yeah, let's, let's jump into the comparison seeing as it's, it's again, I feel like we had the same thing the last time you were on that. It's really hard to keep them mm-hmm. separate because they, I was, I'd, I'd seen the movie first many, many times and then yeah. actually went back and read the book. I'm like, wow, they stayed really close mm-hmm. to the original story with the movie. I was very impressed actually how close yeah, it was. I feel like it was just minor details, but the mm-hmm. same like beats and overall tone, they kept everything the same that needed to stay the same. Mm-hmm. And everything else after that is just, you know, frosting on the cake. Yeah. Essentially. So the adaptation from source material is pretty spot on and good. Yeah, 
I would say it just definitely benefits from having an actual female person in the role of Clarice as opposed to conceptualized via a male author and a male screenwriter and a male director. Yeah. Uh, you know, props yeah. to the director, like I said, for doing the female gaze thing, but Jodie Foster definitely is able to convey emotion and thoughts just from her face mm -hmm. and her voice without having to actually say mm -hmm. what she's thinking about. Like, um, for instance, when she's uh, helping Crawford and the local police um, catalog evidence on the female body they found in the river. Yeah. In the book, Clarice is very clinical, very uh, forward thinking, logical, boom, 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 work it out. Oh, hey, what's this evidence right here kind of thing. And then later on, she kind of has like a moment where she was like, you know, Whoa. suddenly yeah. out of nowhere, like empathizes with the woman, which I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I've acclimped, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure like happens, like, you know, if you're trying to stay focused and not think about it too much, how it can just like hit you all of a sudden. But given her overall thoughts on the person kind of feels a little disingenuous or uh, yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, we have to throw this in here because Clarice uh, later uses an argument against Crawford for why she needs to be on the case because she's the only woman on the case and you need a woman to understand things. And it's like, yeah, all right, I guess. I guess. Okay. It's like, it's a, it's a good argument, but I don't know if you're the right woman for the case. <laughs> but, right. Uh, Meanwhile, in the movie, Clarice doesn't have to say, oh, I feel bad for the woman. She doesn't have to have like a breakdown moment uh, over it. But you can see as she's looking at her, mm -hmm. like how she feels just like a horror and a sadness for her. It's awful. Her, yeah, yeah. And her voice is getting like a little bit choked up, but she's still able to work through it and be a professional. So you can feel and do your job as a woman. Um, yeah. Miracle. <laughs> Who knew? Miracle. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, despite her clearly having a strong emotion towards the body they found, she's the one who's able to tell that there's something in the woman's yeah. throat there's that what, everyone else other men in, Yeah. There's three other men in yeah. the room and she's the only one. She take, they take the Polaroid and she's like, there's something in her mouth. And they're like, nobody mm -hmm. else saw it. And they're like looking right at the body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Again, you don't really have to have like a close up of the victim and the violence done to her. You kind of get like a, a far away shot where you see the body when it's flipped and you kind of see the back, which you need to see to understand the like yeah. the cuts, especially when they make that a tie in the movie later as to how Clarice jumps to conclusions yeah. with things. Making but suits, yeah. they don't really like focus in to see like, you know, oh, uh, the bloody cut and the gore and the meat stuff, which I think like a more modern film would do. Oh, yeah. Um, they would have milked that scene and it would have been like horrific everything would have been bloated and horribly colored mm -hmm. the eye i mean yeah and you see that in like the police shows and like csi and stuff like that where it's like these gross prosthetics yeah but so it, but since they've tied the camera so specifically to clary's that mm -hmm. we just throughout the movie we begin to assume her point of view so we don't need to see the blood and gore to understand the horror and sadness of this, we just need to know how Clarice is feeling and we feel it too. Mm -hmm. So we just get that by her reaction to the body and we're like, oh, this is a somber moment that we have to get through kind of thing and not linger on as long as we can. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing that uh, the movie does better uh, in regards to that kind of empathy thing is uh, 
like I mentioned before, Clarice is very like, you know, thinking of the girls as fat and ugly and unattractive and just like all these unkind thoughts. Um, and, you know, the female friend is also kind of thinking that to the point where like, are you guys really friends? I don't think you're really friends. Right. Um, yeah. Like very shallow, very <laughs> yeah. um, conceited kind of thought process in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the movies, Clarice doesn't really express any opinion about them. Uh, you just kind of see her looking at the pictures and you can make your own assumptions about the girls. She does comment uh, that they are heavier, but she doesn't say like, oh, well, they're just fat. Like she yeah. doesn't, she makes it. Fat sound, is a like, loaded yes. word. Yeah. 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 Like mm-hmm. she's like, they are heavier. So he has a type and that was what mm-hmm. she was describing, but she wasn't actually saying, oh, they're just fatties. Like she wasn't yeah. being aggressive about it. She was stating mm-hmm. they are on the larger yeah. side. Yeah. Emphasizing the fact that this is meant to be a clue as opposed to, oh, I think less of them because of this aspect mm-hmm. of them kind of thing, or mm-hmm. I'm going to think unkind things about them, essentially. The only one who doesn't get that treatment is Catherine Martin, who's still described as big and will have to fight the fat when she gets older in the book. Yeah. And I think she's only described as still pretty and only big because they find the sexy pictures of her. Uh, so she's allowed to not be unattractive and ugly because she has the sexy pictures. Uh, meanwhile, yeah. in the movie, mm-hmm. who do they find the sexy pictures of? Frederica Bimmel. The first girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, and later on when she confronts uh, Buffalo Bill not knowing who he is yet and she's asking, do you know Frederica Bimmel? He s- describes her as like, oh yeah, she was that, wasn't that she that great big fat person? And she just, you kind of see her literally trying to hold back an eye roll yeah. and going, she was a big girl, yes. <laughs> and, that's, and that's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's I, I agree. Like the actual like visual representation of her going like, "Ugh, why did you say it that way?" Like you mm-hmm. can see it on her face, which yeah, I I love that they did that because that's mm-hmm. how most women <laughs> would respond. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm so happy to hear that the one takeaway that you remember of this person is that they were a fat one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like not just a fat one, a big fat one, a big fat one. It's like great, mm-hmm. thank you. I love that. That's what we've retained out of our memory. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, in a scene also when she's talking to that friend, we kind of get like, you know, yeah, a little like, you know, uh, she's like, yeah, she was so impressed that, you know, when I got this big bank job, the big dummy, but instead of like being aggressive, kind of like it was in the book, you kind of see like, you know, she's like, she never had the chance to learn that there's there's more in this world than just, you know, a bank job in some city kind of thing. And she's sad that she's gone and that that she never got to experience that as opposed to, yeah, big dummy didn't realize there's more to this world than that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, there was actual like remorse in that character. Mm-hmm. It, whereas in the book, they definitely made it like, oh my God, we were like best friends, but she was like really frumpy and had a gay boyfriend and like, uh, she just like didn't know anything. And I I mean, we were basically best friends. <laughs> it's like, wow, there's a lot of conflicting going on there. <laughs> like, yeah. We were best friends, but I felt sorry for her she was the worst but anyway i loved her (laughs) yeah yeah i was like that doesn't sound at all genuine and you kind of sound like a jerk so yeah very different vibe in the movie for sure yeah very like kind of 80s vibe of like what i imagine a man would imagine how women talk to and about each other yeah (laughs) which you can kind of see in movies and books the time of like women just being very catty towards each other which If, you, if you're, like, casually observing women talk to each other and they're being catty to each other, yeah, that sometimes happens, but it's usually in context of something else. Right. It's and, not just everyday conversations are yeah. always this way. <laughs> yeah. Or just, like, you know, you express frustrations to a man about another woman, but it's not actually how you genuinely feel. You're just expressing a moment of, this person is driving me crazy, but that's not how you genuinely or generally feel about the person. Right. Yeah. Right. But they might just assume that, oh, that's how they feel about that person. 
all the time. Yeah. Therefore, this is how female relations work. All women work this way. Didn't you know, Julie? Did you not get the memo? Yeah, no. It's all cattiness or someone has to take the weight of caring for the other person, like Clarice's roommate, whose sole job is to help Clarice. Obviously. That is it. Yeah. That is, she's, she's just support all the time. Mm -hmm. That's how you do. That's how you do. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think the the movie did a much better representation overall of actually showing the proper emotion without it being like, she's getting hysterical. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they they don't do anything like that. She's very poised, but she also has empathy and sympathy and actual like things shake her, which is like, she's still a student. So it's like, she's still relatively new to being in the field. So if she wasn't shaken, I would be concerned. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, you're not a sociopath. So this should be pretty jarring for you. (laughs) They do show a moment of her being genuinely shaken. Like after Migs throws the cum in her hair and she's shown in her car afterwards. And she's like, has like a minor, she allows herself. You can see her allowing herself to have a minor moment. (laughs) And then like, Move on, but it's like, that's understandable. No one wants to have cum thrown at them. That is disturbing (laughs) beyond belief. And I I mean, anybody would be like horrified and feeling violated for something like that. So that is a very proper response. (laughs) And then I was actually thinking, going back to that, um, the autopsy shot, um, right before they open the body bag, they're like putting the Vicks vapor rub or whatever that was, like the menthol under their noses to help with the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they did an amazing shot where, uh, I can't remember if it was one of the agents or the guy who owns the mortuary unzips the bag and like, does this like dramatic step back. And then they show and they zoom in on Clarice's face who her back is currently faced, facing the body. And you can see her just like close her eyes and like brace herself because of the smell. But it's, it, and that's all like, it's such an, she didn't have to say anything. Like it's all mm-hmm. in the face. And, and I love how. Jodie Foster played this character because it's poised and her her expressions are like not delicate but they're like really subtle and it it adds so much context for her character and I, I think she did a really good job mm-hmm. and it, it, it just blows my mind like she was like what 25 26 or something when she did that movie I mean she wasn't that old 29 she's 29 yeah I mean she wasn't that I mean yeah she wasn't that old and she's just like this baby face she looks so good uh, apparently, also in that same interview, I uh, I saw Clarice Starling is still her favorite character to have played. Oh, nice! Yeah, I mean it's a great role, and and they did an amazing job of keeping to the movie and giving her an amazing, like very well rounded character to play. It was not linear at all. Well, I want to um. We, we didn't really talk about it in the last section, but now we're in the comparison section, which is exciting. Ooh. We uh, already kind of talked about the book version of Buffalo Bill. So let's mm-hmm. compare the yeah. movie version, which I am so intrigued to see what your thoughts on this are. So uh, like I mentioned with the book, Thomas Harris goes out of his way several times to say how uh, Buffalo Bill is not only not a typical transsexual, he's not one at all, and I'll just use that term because that's what they use in the book mm-hmm. and the movie, uh, that he isn't that at all. He should not be used as an example of what a transsexual person is ever. In the movie, they kind of just touch on it, the barest moment, yeah. uh, with Clarice saying that to Hannibal Lecter, that you know transsexuals aren't typically violent, aren't usually violent, yeah. which isn't to say that Buffalo Bill isn't a transsexual or that uh, not all 
transsexuals aren't violent, but it, it's not enough of a separation to really convey that Jane Gum is not a representation of a transgendered or transsexual person, mm-hmm. that he's not a usual example, mm-hmm. but is still connected to it. And since it's mentioned just so briefly, yeah. if you're not looking for it, that statement can just easily pew, just blow past the casual watcher. Uh, what everyone does remember about Buffalo Bill yeah. is, yeah, yeah, goodbye horses. Yep. Yep. The, uh, <laughs> the tuck scene. Yep. Uh, and also another thing that we didn't mention uh, is that in the book, we just get surface thoughts of like what he wants to happen or what his motivations are. But his desire to have the woman's suit does not seem to be very sexualized. He doesn't seem to see it as sex. He sees it as beauty. Mm-hmm. And he kind of conveys that he wa- like the moth and the butterfly. He wants to become beautiful Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really tie it to sex very much right uh in the movie it is explicitly tied to sex because as he's putting on the wig and tucking himself and wearing the big flashy colorful robe he's saying the infamous lines would you fuck me i'd Mm -hmm. fuck me i'd fuck me so hard and it's like yikes it's like it's a terrifying moment in the in the movie to watch but at the same time when you see the careful work that thomas harris did and then that it's like ooh, that was almost entirely undone (laughs) yep yep i agree i think that um you know with again you mentioned before how they have such a minimal just quote-unquote disclaimer of what transgendered people are perceived as in this storyline that Mm -hmm. if you don't know Anything beyond you just read this book and you know nothing else beyond what it means to be transgendered. This is the representation that you are given is that transgendered people abduct women, skin them, and wear them as clothing. And that's mm-hmm. that's like the top surface of what you understand of transgendered people, which is horribly inaccurate. <laughs> so uh, that is frustrating that they have a little like, oh, yeah, they're normally passive. Moving on. And it's like, wait, yeah. wait, 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 Like, <laughs> you can't just leave that and then just mm-hmm. hope that people understand what you mean. Like, that's barely anything. And they they yeah. lose the whole, like, they go to John Hopkins and they talk to the doctor there. And they and that conversation does come up a lot in the book, and which I like because it does like this is not normal he is not really transgendered he believes he is but he is an outlier and we are going to continue to hammer this home whereas in the movie they're like that they're normally passive but he's not moving on (laughs) moving on yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay well Mm -hmm. i think the reason they pass over that is just because i think just uh transgendered issues weren't like in the zeitgeist the way it is right now oh no and not so they at all i mean it was probably would have felt yeah, yeah. probably would have felt that it like bogged down the runtime of the movie or became too much about that thing mm-hmm. and so i don't believe it was like you know a bad faith intention of like you know oh well, let's just make him like you know a representation of transsexuals and more just like ah eh, we don't have the time this is a very nuanced topic let's just like you know mention that not everyone's like this and move on and hope that's enough which for those that pay attention yeah. and do, do their research might be enough, but for your average, like, you know, Bob and Betty of the Midwest, if you ask them to, to name, like, you know, a transgender character, and if they ask what that means and you kind of describe it, they might go, oh, like, uh, like Buffalo Bill? Norman Bates or Buffalo Bill. And you're like, yeah. uh. 
<laughs> no. Yeah. But I see why you extrapolated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And it's it's unfortunate because this movie is iconic. I mean, so many people have seen this movie and know the story very, very well. And so, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you get this representation and it's like, ugh. I mean – the movie itself is amazing, but there's this one facet that is like, I can't even imagine how much the transgendered community must hate this movie. <laughs> like, because of that representation. It's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you just have to wonder is like, with the community, do they consider that representation? Yeah. And I mean, it's not. It's not an accurate representation, but at the same time, that random Joe Schmo who doesn't know any better, that is their representation. So it's like, yes, this isn't a true representation and it wasn't technically intended to be, but at the same time, look at the repercussions of when you don't flesh these ideas out, when you don't Mm -hmm. actually talk about the actual issues and structures in society with this kind of condition, people are just going to take that at their own kind of thought process of like, oh, well, transgender people are sick in the head and they kill women and skin them. Like, (laughs) it's like, not not where you want people to be going. There's already enough stuff going on where they're trying to help bring awareness to this topic and this kind of stuff does not help. <laughs> so. It doesn't even have to be like, you know, as straight a line as like, you know, oh, all transsexuals are capable of skinning and flaying women alive. Uh, it could just be as subtle as kind of like um, quote, uh, coding villains as queer throughout film yeah, history it doesn't you, <laughs> like, all of disney too yeah you don't have to be as strict as like all gay people are these bad guys you just have to since these are people are bad guys certain elements can be coded as deviant or bad so mm-hmm. if gay people are seen as deviant of some sorts then again it gets lumped into their subconsciously yep. you can say oh yes logically like you know not all gay people are criminals. Not all, you know, transgender people are, you know, murderous serial killers. But the subconscious tie and the fear elements are there yep. kind of thing. Exactly. And that's the danger. Because yeah. um, now I'm thinking of, like, Ursula in Little yeah. Mermaid. There's <laughs> a whole other issue there. And then mm-hmm. you look at, like, Jafar and Scar and, like, all mm-hmm. these characters who are very flimbly. Radigan. Yeah. Radigan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of characters where they are, are – very flamboyant and flashy and have green everywhere and they're the baddies and it's yeah that the connotation is there it's like well bad means that they are more of the quote-unquote gay perspective because they are not as masculine they are more flamboyant and and yeah it's oh julie that gets me so cranky yeah Yeah, so I do not think that this interpretation came from bad faith. They were working with the source material, which tried to do more in good faith. Um, I think they just did not really realize the full implications that might come from how little they touched on the topic. Yeah. Sometimes less is more and sometimes less is less. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, it's like, uh, again, you come back to how much of of the transgendered community or, you know, the world of being transgendered, how much do they actually know? Probably nothing. So obviously they're not going to want to touch on that because it's either too much effort or they don't feel comfortable doing it. Either way, this is your outcome of not doing your homework or, I mean, I guess it's also kind of frustrating because they had stuff in the source material that they could have used and translated it into the movie, but they apparently deemed it not really necessary, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to have the story move along, which I kind of get, but like, yeah, it ugh. got lumped into the small details. Yeah, which is a little unfortunate. Sometimes the details are important for yeah. things beyond the story. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Ugh, it's yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Um, 
I mean, we, we've already kind of talked a lot about different comparisons. Is there any other kind of big things that you thought were substantially different from the movie versus the book? Hmm. Um, big things. Not really. Like we mentioned, they hit all the big moments and the big mm-hmm. theme. Uh, bam, bam, bam. Uh, almost indistinguishable from each other from just like a casual thing. Only thing really that stands out are like just the small differences. Like the book does a good job with like, you know, the little breadcrumbs following the mystery. Whereas in the movie follows your typical movie mystery of like, you know, Oh, big sweeping reveal. And you know, we go yeah. to this place, another big reveal. And we go to this wow. place. Wow. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to showing like all the, the time and the uh, thinking that goes into finding each clue and where that leads and yeah, everything involved. Yeah, that actually just made me think of um, a big difference that I'm actually happy they didn't put it in the movie was the relationship, if you can even call it that, that Clarice develops with the the bug specialists. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. So in the book, they have like, she goes to them to figure out what kind of like the pupa that they found or the the bug pod that they found to try and Mm -hmm. figure out what it is, where it came from, what's the significance. And they kind of touch on it in the movie where the the one character is like asking if she wants to get a drink sometime mm-hmm. and she's like are you hitting on me and he's like maybe and and like and that's kind of where it stops and it's like oh good we've got yet again a woman who's just doing her job and dudes hitting on her as if that's yep. okay like mm-hmm. here we are yet again which i'm like accurate like <laughs> so i like that they did that in the movie but in the book it's like she keeps coming back to them because in real life it doesn't happen in ten minutes, so that yeah, makes you, sense. They'd have you don't to wait. D- d- cover a super rare species of moth like in ten seconds. Yeah, right. They're <laughs> like, oh, I know exactly what this is by just cutting it open and taking a look at it. I know exactly yeah. what type this is. Um, but yeah, so she has to keep coming back to them, and every time he's like, drink, drink, drink. Do you want? Do you want to get a drink? And she's like, I don't know, I don't know. And and then they eventually actually like hook up and then she goes like to a cottage or something with him and his family and i'm like whoa whoa like moving fast moving yeah i was like i don't understand why that was even necessary and it's like was he trying to humanize her or it's like we need a love interest even though that's not the point of the story but we're gonna have a love interest in there like i don't know Mm -hmm. why that was even in there like it doesn't it didn't really like add anything to her character like especially from what i remember of like their interactions she was always she didn't never stop to think of him as like oh hey he's an attractive guy or he seems safe or yeah Yeah. i'd be interested in getting a drink with him it just kind of like happens like quote unquote off stage (laughs) yeah uh, yeah like thinking about him she only has like you know irritation for like you know i'm working dude stop hitting on me or just like you know oh i only got a message from him and not from crawford fine uh and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. oh yeah i'm going to a cottage like wait what what (laughs) yeah it it was just like yeah like there's no connection at all and she's like Mm -hmm. dismissing him constantly and then all of a sudden it's like "Eh, i got nothing better going on i guess i'll just hang out with this dude now that the case is over and it's like hang out with this dude and his family and his family (laughs) wow 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 that happened real fast um Yeah. yeah i i think yeah i i i sat there and i was thinking about like why did he deem this necessary? And I cannot mm-hmm. figure it out. <laughs> Is it, I, I guess he was trying to like humanizers. Like, look, she's a woman and she needs a relationship to make sense. Like, which is dumb. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm glad they cut that from the movie because I think we keep coming back to the theme of the female gaze, and they did a really good job of you know capturing 
that not only can you be a good detective or a good FBI agent or good at your job, but you can also be a woman at the same time. And it doesn't oh get in the way. Wow, wow, Surprise. wow. <gasps> oh, it's a miracle, Julie. Who knew you it's could multitask as a woman? <laughs> I just didn't know. No one told me this was allowed. But now uh, we know. And now we know. Clarice <laughs> gave us permission, so now we know. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any other big things. Because you're right. They're so close. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess another big difference is um, they kind of remove what's going on in Jack Crawford's life. Oh, uh, yeah. They go into that a lot in the wife. book. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. nothing going on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a really the, big difference. In the book, I think he's – not in the book. In the movie, I think he's just meant to be like – a mentor figure slash representation of the FBI and Clarice's future. Like mm-hmm. he's slick, he's tall, he's authoritative, he's in control, he's got a handle on everything. Clarice can always count on him for like uh, advice and stability. Yeah. In the book, um, Jack Crawford was all of that, but he's like lost a lot of weight. He's kind of disheveled. The case is kind of getting away from him because his wife is dying from cancer at home. Yeah. Uh, which is a big like empathizing moment with him. Like he's not just this, you know, big scary FBI guy trying to hunt to kill her. He's like a husband who's about to lose his wife. You feel especially bad for him when like everyone's making these assumptions that like, oh yeah, he's interested in this FBI agent or FBI student because, you know, oh, he wants to do her or everyone assumes they're already having sex with each other, especially Chilton, who's gross. <laughs> Chilton's gross. And Hannibal asks it too. He's like, "Is did he pick you because he's sexually attracted to you? And they, they mention that. I think Hannibal asks it just because he knows it'll get a reaction out of her and less because yeah. he genuinely thinks that. Yeah. Uh, I think he'd be able to pick that up if that were the case. Um, I think he just asked it to see what her reaction was, saw that that wasn't the case, and then just moves on. Um, Also, Hannibal knew that his wife was dying because when she dies, he sends him a letter saying, Mm -hmm. my condolences, in the book at least. Yeah. Um, So he knew that that his wife was dying. Yeah. And in the book, uh, Chilton is talking to Hannibal about how, like, uh, he just knows that, you know, Clarice and Crawford are totally fucking each other and they'll come out publicly once the wife dies. And you can just, like, Hannibal just has all this contempt for Chilton for even thinking that, which is why I don't think Hannibal ever genuinely thought that. He just pitched the question to see where it would go and, like, all right, not the case. All right, moving on. Just like he pitched the question to Clarice, like, did the farmer touch you, Clarice? I know. Dang it. Oh, All right. Darn. Moving on. I was hoping to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Another difference is Clarice's backstory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, which actually I was just going to bring up because it's like the title. Yeah. Like, Silence of the Lambs. The, yeah. Like where yeah. did the title come from? Yep. Mm-hmm. It like it makes less sense in the book and they make it make more sense in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's a similar story. Clarice is shipped off to like a cousin's farm once her dad dies. In the book, her mom's still alive. She just can't take care of like, all the kids anymore. Cope, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in the movie, like Clarice has a traumatic experience with screaming lambs as they're being you know, slaughtered in the spring. Mm-hmm. She takes one and runs, but is caught. This lamb goes back and she couldn't save it. Mm-hmm. So now in the movie, she's driven to save uh, Catherine Martin because, yeah, she's a lamb. And, you know, will the lamb stop screaming, Clarice? Yeah. Uh, and in the movie, I mean, in the book, it's a little different. She's woken by the screaming lambs, but she 
say rescues a horse a blind horse and she mm-hmm. is able to get away with it and the horse lives a long happy life in an orphanage you know riding around with kids and tilling a little garden and then you know dies of old age eventually like a year before the book starts mm-hmm. and it's like that is a nice story it's got a lot less punch than I tried to rescue a lamb and I failed and now I just hear the screaming of the lambs. Yeah. That makes the title make a lot of sense as opposed to, yeah, I was motivated by the screaming of the lambs to save this horse. And I succeeded. Moving the on. End. Yeah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it was an interesting choice because I, I still think that you could kind of extrapolate that, that drive from Clarice of like, I've got to save those that need saving Mm-hmm. It's just interesting that the title is Silence of the Lambs and then the main focal point in that backstory was I saved a blind horse. But I think they also kind of touched on like I saved the horse because I couldn't get to the lambs. Yeah. And the horse was the thing that I could take, mm-hmm. which it's fine. I think it was yeah. it was it didn't like detract from the story. It didn't like like, huh, like what just happened? It, it's just I think you're right. I think that they, they just took that whole thing out in the movie and executed it just a little bit better to really like drive that title home because they got the vibe out like the vibe is there. It's just they tweaked the the main story a little bit. Yeah. And the book, you've got time to fully describe what that story means to Clarice and why the screaming of the lambs motivates her mm-hmm. uh, in the movie. You got less time. So you just have to make that story more more poignant yeah. on point. Yeah. Yep. This is why I couldn't save the lambs. I want, I need to save all the lambs to stop the screaming. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I, oh man, it's, that title is just like, no, kind of like really diving into her, like seeing, like wanting to become an FBI agent for many reasons. Like her father was in law enforcement and then she wants to be able to like save other lambs essentially. So like that is a really powerful drive. And mm-hmm. for it being the title you know, they they talk about that that flashback for her that one time and never talk about it again. But it's so poignant to kind of realize like, oh, now this makes sense as to like why she is the way she is and why she picked this job on top mm-hmm. of kind of the contextual of like her father was there and he died on like on duty. And like, there's a lot of other color that they've added, but that's a really powerful story. And it sounds mm-hmm. horrific. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard animals dying. It's not a great sound. It sounds awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it is like blood curdling. So I can only imagine having to experience that as a child. It's pretty horrific. So what a drive. (laughs) I I think it's it's extra interesting then when in the final scene of the movie, when Clarice is, you know, in the dark uh, being hunted or not even before she's in the dark, just as she's trying to find Buffalo Bill, a Catherine is screaming at her, yelling at yeah. her, save me, save me, save me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, uh, before we sign off, I wanted to talk really quick about that scene in the dark with her mm-hmm. and Buffalo Bill. Um, yeah. You know, we, again, the theme is um, the kind of depiction of Clarice in both versions. I feel like in the book, they had her, you know, stumbling around in the dark, but again, she was completely composed. She wasn't panicking. She was just using her training. Think back to your training. And it was like a very analytical scene. But in the book or in the, in the movie, um, she has genuine fear and is like breathing really heavily and is not stumbling, but she's like moving around in the dark like she can't see because she can't. 
And it just, it yet again humanized her and shows that like all of her training could not really prepare her for mm-hmm. that moment because how often are they training you to navigate in the dark with a serial killer? And also like you yeah. can't recreate that. It, it, like your body is going to know the difference so that you can only recreate that so much anyway. So it it definitely humanized her. And I don't think that it made her like, oh, she's just a scared little woman in a, in a dark room. Like it was genuine. And I, I mm-hmm. really like how they did that. Yeah, especially since in the book, they made a point of calling her out as like the best shot in her class. Yeah. And so like, you know, oh yeah, that's why she's able to stay like, you know, calm and composed. She's the best shot. She could get them. Whereas in the movie, they show a scene of her and her other cadets uh, practicing like um, going into a room and uh, clearing it and arresting a criminal. Yeah. And and she she makes a mistake. Yeah. To show that, oh, this is genuinely scary. She's made a mistake before. Is she going to make another one? There, her terror is more real because we've seen that happen, that she's still in training. She's still learning. She is not, even if she thinks she's prepared, she is not prepared right. for darkness and being hunted like an animal. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. And then, you know, the flip back and forth of, you know, her visual of what she's seeing versus Buffalo Bill with his night vision goggles. And it's like such a terrifying scene, but it's so well shot to get that emotion across that it's like a very tense, tense moment. And there's no music going on. It's literally just her and him in a room and her breathing really, really heavily. And then you can kind of hear Buffalo Bill's breathing when they flip back to his version. And it's, oh, it's such a creepy shot. And it's so, so well executed. Oh, I loved it so much. You know, we could we could talk about this forever. There's so many yes. other things that we haven't <laughs> even touched on. But is there any are do you have any final thoughts? Oh, I'm gonna have like 50 final thoughts. I after know, right? There's so recording. many things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, I I cannot praise both of these enough. I mean, there's mm-hmm. obviously flaws on both sides, but overall, like. I just, like I said before, I cannot believe how close they stayed yeah. to the original. Um, mm-hmm. And again, Anthony Hopkins, heartthrob. He was so good. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins, I love you. Um, <laughs> great. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a joy as always. Yes. Yes. Uh, before we go, are there any recommendations for what you are currently reading or what are you doing right now that you want to give a shout out about? Oh, currently reading. Uh, well, uh, since the author recently died, I have just been binging uh, the graphic novel series Berserk. Ooh, uh, yes, yeah. which I only recommend if you are okay with gratuitous, and I mean gratuitous amounts of violence and gore and blood and sex <laughs> and nudity. Lots of nudity. Which, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the story is fantastic just about the notions of good and evil and existence and survival and what does it mean to be human and how far can someone be changed before they're inhuman anymore and just a lot of existential questions uh, that are asked throughout like i said a very very violent and sexualized story yeah but it's honestly the story is told through that it has to be through violence uh But it is very good. Uh, the Like I said, the author, uh, Kentaro Mira, uh, died recently uh, yeah. without finishing the story. I However, know. everyone says that, I haven't gotten to the very end yet, um, but everyone says that the ending 
the last thing he published could be taken as like Ooh. an ending, like a Ooh. very kind of like, uh, oh God, this was a very foreshadowing of what was to come kind of ending. Oh, yeah. That's actually really sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's sad because he was a very dedicated author and he did all the illustrations. Only in most recent years did he take uh, like other artists on because he was getting ill, but mm-hmm. he was working to his own detriment his work was more important than his health and it it finally caught up to him yeah Yeah. so if you want to read if you want to read something that someone has been writing since the year i was born and dedicated his entire life to definitely take a look at berserk if you can stand it (laughs) yeah i was gonna say there's the manga and then there's also the animated series which are both amazing there are several animated series i highly recommend the 90s animated series the original one yes yeah Mm -hmm. yeah for sure it is way better oh my gosh well julie uh thank you again this has been lovely always a pleasure to have you on the show always and to our listeners thank you again for joining us and we will see you next time thanks guys bye-bye ending title oh the fancy (laughs) things (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.